Hey folks, thanks for joining us for this episode of the Restoration Project's weekly podcast. The Restoration Project is a cooperative Baptist fellowship church located in Salisbury, Maryland. We are taking a break from our latest sermon series. Enjoy this standalone episode. Thanks for listening. I had a difficult time figuring out what uh, to talk about because we're in between kind of Christmas and uh, where we're going in the, in the next month or so and then getting back into the book of John. So I thought we would just stick with the lectionary. Now remember the lectionary is, uh, it's a three-year cycle of scripture verses that have been assigned for ministers and for congregations to uh, specifically to preach through the Bible uh, in a number of years. And what we have is an Old Testament passage. We've got an epistle, uh, something from Paul. We've got some some poetry, and then we've got a gospel reading in these four different counts for the lectionary. The one that I was drawn to today, it actually could have gone both ways. Um, I really enjoyed the gospel reading, which is actually the text from Matthew that we looked at during the worship set, Matthew chapter 2. It's called the, The Massacre of the Innocents. Uh, according to some folks, with regard to Herod wanting to to kill all these baby boys. The other text that kind of caught my attention, I think might speak more to us as as a congregation, whether we're in this room or listening on the podcast or or wherever. It seems like the conversations that might arise out of this will be more, maybe more meaningful and more relevant to where we are. And I hope that makes sense as we get into it. So I'm going to read you Uh, Three verses from the book of Isaiah. We're in chapter 63. If you want some background, remember this is in the third section of the the book of Isaiah in chapters 56 through 66. Most people think that this is the last uh, portion of the book to have been written and has been uh, brought into this larger book uh, of Isaiah. So here we have in chapter 63, it says, I will recount the Lord's faithful acts. I will sing the Lord's praises because of all the Lord did for us, for God's great favor toward the house of Israel. God treated them compassionately and with deep affection. God said, truly, they are my people, children who won't do what is wrong. God became their savior. During all their distress, God also was distressed. So a messenger who served him saved them. In love and mercy, God redeemed them lifting and carrying them throughout earlier times. The word of God for the people of God. I wanted to like just throw this in there. The, the lectionary has set us up. It's given us these three verses that seem really nice, right? God's saving people. There's a lot of great things that are happening here. But this is just a, a blip within a larger set of texts that we don't necessarily um, have the privilege of seeing, maybe on some cases, but here tonight, friends, you will see the entire picture here. So the Revised Lectionary, it, it wants us to see maybe some of the good stuff, but that's not exactly the whole story. In fact, if we're looking at Isaiah chapter 63, verses 7 through 9, we need to read this in light of its larger context, which includes uh, up to chapter 64, verse 12. So we've got this large poem that's happening here, this large piece of prophecy where the prophet is, is wanting the people to understand, and also, as we'll see, he's wanting God to understand some things 
as well. You can see here in the text that we just read, like all the good things. I will recount the Lord's faithful acts. I will sing the Lord's praises, the way that God has been committed to us, the way that God has shown his covenant relationship with us, the way that God has been on our side. He's treated us compassionately with deep affection. God says, truly, these are my people, children who won't do what is wrong. He became their savior during all their distress. God was also distressed. I love that line. And we're gonna come back to this, this idea of God weeping with those who weep. Uh, I think it's an important thing for us to hold on to in the midst of tragedy, but God is invested in his people with love and mercy. God redeemed them, lifting and carrying them throughout the earlier times. I didn't look at this in the Hebrew, but a lot of times that, that idea of carrying Israel throughout uh, the past, this is a forgiveness type term where it says that God carries Israel's sins with him. Whatever wrongs they do, God takes them almost upon his shoulder and carries that burden for the sake of relationship. Whatever you do to kind of screw me over, I will take that and absorb that so that we have to maintain this relationship. This idea of forgiveness, it's this beautiful word picture of God carrying uh, Israel and their wrongdoing throughout a lot of times throughout the wilderness and such, but these are all good things. But then as soon as you turn into the next verse, it says, but the people rebelled. They made God's Holy Spirit terribly sad or from the, the King James only people in the room uh, grieved. They grieved God's Holy Spirit so that he turned into their enemy. He fought against them. And then they remembered earlier times. Actually, this, this line back here about the rebellion of Israel, it's, it's like a blip on the, on the screen here. The author doesn't really want to deal with this. He would rather want to deal with what God has done in the past and how God is not doing those things anymore. We're a far way away from just those three nice verses that the lectionary gave us because it goes on to say, then the people, they remembered earlier times when he rescued his people. Where was the one who drew them up from the sea? Where was the one who was involved and invested? Where was that person? Where was the one who put within them his Holy Spirit, the one who guided Moses' strong hand with his own glorious arm, the one who split the water for them? This is a, a hearkening back to the splitting of the Red Sea and, and God's people going out of captivity in Egypt into uh, freedom and life uh, eventually, but God is splitting open the sea, the water for them to, to, to move beyond their oppressors. The one who creates an enduring reputation for himself and who guided them through the depths like a horse in the desert. They didn't stumble like cattle descending to the valley. The Lord's spirit brought them rest. In this way, you led your people and made for yourself a glorious reputation. This is an appeal to the past. This is the prophet going back and saying, remember all these things that have happened in our history. Remember when God showed up for Moses. Remember when we were brought out of uh, oppression and subjectivity and we were brought into freedom and life and hope. This is an appeal to the past, but it moves the author to petition because they're convinced that God is no longer doing these things for them anymore. Where were you? Where are you? What's happening? The things that are going on, and nobody really knows what the author of Isaiah 63 is, is referring to here. It could, be, uh, it could be the exile. It could be the fact that Babylon, the superpower, shows up and destroys their home and, and moves them into captivity. It could be the fact that they've gone back from captivity and they've come back to Israel and they're looking around and they're saying, this isn't everything that you said it was going to be. 
all that big like comfort, comfort, says the Lord your God, like that, that it's not happening here. And they're beginning to call God to task, accusing God, if you will. And then they launch into this uh, more classic petitionary language. Look down from heaven and see from your holy and glorious perch. Where are your energy and your might, your concern and your pity? Don't hold back. Implication. You're nowhere to be seen. And when you were with the people in the past, you're not with us now. Where's your energy and your might, your concern and your pity? Because we don't feel it right now. Whatever the situation is that they're going through, they don't have any points of contact with God. And this is where I think there might be, and this is a small room tonight, okay? So I'm not trying to throw you guys all in, in, the, in this mold, but I think that there might be some points of contact where people are looking around and saying, Where, where's God in all of this? Particularly when we have this thing that we've grown up with, this box, this set of understandings and beliefs about who God is and what God is up to, and when that doesn't really hold water anymore, then you begin to have these moments of deconstruction and asking, what do we do now in light of all of this Stuff. This text that we're looking at here in Isaiah 63, 7 through 64, 12 is what is known as a communal lament. Now, you guys want to get nerdy for a second? I mean, it's built into the slideshow. I could, I could pass it up, but I don't want to do that, Dr. Lampkin. I want to keep going. This is Hermann Gunkel. But you, you guys just want, you wanted to come here tonight for some, some 19th century German historical criticism, didn't you? Well, lucky for you, upon the roster of those who have contributed most significantly and illuminatingly to our understanding of the records of the Old and New Testament, the name of Hermann Gunkel is inscribed indelibly. This guy right here sort of changed the game back in the day when he was uh, contributing. He made a lot of contributions to Psalms scholarship and also Genesis, but we're gonna leave the Genesis stuff off to the side for a moment. What, what really Gunkel has for us to, to um, think about this evening with, are with regard to his understanding of the Psalms. He had two main advances in Psalm studies when he's writing his work. First is the necessity of identifying a Psalms literary type or genre based on the form of that psalm. Now, this is important because I said that what we see in the book of Isaiah is what's called a communal lament or a communal petition. These are genre categories that Gunkel has helped us to understand, and it will help us to then uh, really dig in and figure out what's going on in the book of Isaiah. So the first thing is, he says, when you come to a psalm, you have to identify, or a piece of poetry, if that helps you, you have to identify what type of poetry it is or what type of psalm it is. It's like if you were listening to a piece of music, you would immediately have categories for that piece of music. And right now, it would have been really cool if I said, cue the music, and then some music played, but I'm big, big letdown. Uh, sorry. We have categories for that, and it helps us to understand and appreciate whatever it is that we're listening to, which is why when things go south or things go right, you're like, whoa, that's a strange move in that, in that song. 
He also said that on the basis of this, on the basis of understanding the genre or the type of whatever it is we're looking at, the piece of poetry, that we can reconstruct how that thing was used in Israel's corporate worship. How it might have um, spoken to the people or how the people might have incorporated that psalm or that piece of poetry in their corporate life together. Now, just so we're all on the same page here, when we're talking about genres, we're talking about groups of texts that are similar in mood, content, structure, and phraseology, so says Tremper Longman III. And we have examples of this in music. We've got John Coltrane, we've got the Rolling Stones, we've got the Queen herself, Beyonce. Anybody know who this guy is? Billy Joel, of course, he's got the quaff there. And we also have the B-52s. I mean, these were <coughs> cutting edge cutting-edge artists of the time. Thank you, Josh Engel. I was, I was hoping that there, one of these things is not like the other. One of these things just doesn't belong. And it's not Beyonce, it's these guys. Sorry, sorry, Tracy, if that, if that hurts you. Yeah. Still are. You have, uh, you have examples in literature where you can, you can ascribe things based on their genre. Evan, tell me a little bit about this book, Grant. What kind of genre would we, would we say that this is? American military history. Okay, we could go American military history. That's a subcategory. We could also go more of a macro approach and say that this is historical nonfiction, and it's also even more so, it's, it's a book written about a person, so it's a biography, which is different than Michelle Obama's Becoming book, which is... An autobiography, good, which is very different from Harry Potter, which we would call... An epic. We would call it freaking awesome, is what we would call it. When you walk into Barnes & Noble, there's just a, a little plaque that says freaking awesome, and underneath of it would be Harry Potter and some other things. But yeah, young adult... Fantasy. Fantasy. Something, whatever. And then we have this. I, I, no? Laura rejects this, out of hand. Sad, no it's not Josh, it's just, it's just sad. For the podcast listeners at home, the, the large number of you that there are, we're looking at Nicholas Sparks' A Walk to Remember, and it is tragic. Mandy Moore has not shaken the emotional, make you cry, and hate your life sort of genre. She has really nailed that down right now in her current television show. Now, we, we kind of understand these things, and when Gunkel was looking at the Psalms, we've got 150 individual Psalms. Actually, check that. Some people would want to combine a couple of these Psalms together, but we'll leave that conversation for another day. 150 or so poems, and he's attempting to figure out how they are to be grouped according to genre. In order to distinguish between these psalms, he relied upon a formulaic pattern in the structure, things that were the same, things that could be expected. It's similar to other types of genres. There are patterns that we might expect. If you're watching a romantic comedy, what will happen? Actually, let's back that up. If you're watching a, any of the Christmas movies on the Hallmark Channel, what will you expect to find? 
Yes. A guy who works in the city who has to come back and like save his dad's tree farm and a, and a country bumpkin who starts to work there and she's disgruntled. You know, it, it's these sorts of things. You can expect this sort of uh, stuff to happen. And it's the same when he was looking at the Psalms. There's certain patterns that are replicated. So he identifies three main genres in the Psalms. They are hymn or praise Psalms. They are communal and individual laments or complaints, and they are individual thanksgivings. A hymn or a praise is basically just making claims about who God is. God is the creator. God is the sustainer. God is the one, not even necessarily who has done great stuff in the past. That's too specific. It's just these overarching theological claims about who God is that forms the core theology of the people. A lament or a petition is when that all gets jacked up. The basis of your theology is here, and then life happens and everything is dis disrailed. Derailed. Thank you. <laughs> dis disrailed. Okay. And then also we have a thanksgiving, which is the response to everything has been jacked up. Everything has been disrailed. And now uh, the psalmist says, and I prayed, I was in the pit. My life was a disaster and God responded. And now I'm here to give thanks for the things that have happened in my life. There's also some other smaller genres, but we're not going to worry about those because what Gunkel was doing was helping us to understand this massive literature and then put it into its categories. I've been thinking that it might be like you live on a desert island and somebody gives you a, an eclectic playlist from Spotify and you're to group and to gather and to put those things into categories. This is what he's doing with an ancient dead language with texts that are so far removed, he's attempting to put them in their proper place. And about the lament psalms, he says there's an order that's characteristic. It's first the wailing, almost desperate lament and the passionate prayer, and then suddenly certainty of deliverance. It's you have this person who is just like at the end of their rope, not knowing what to do, and they're taking that to God in the most honest way possible. And it's not the prettiest of language. Like in our text that we're looking at here, yes, it's a communal lament, but it's one that's actually holding God accountable for the things that are happening in the lives of the people. Uh, Brueggemann says that in this utterance in Isaiah um, 63 through 64, it says, Israel is pondering its lamentable situation in the context of Yahweh's promises, and it focuses upon the profound contradiction between faith and circumstance. Have you ever felt that? The tension between what you believe, what you have staked your life on, and what is actually happening to you. And you don't have the categories to make sense of that. You could also say that this is just showing the contradiction between faith and life. Which is why sometimes it's easy in this room to think deeply, to think critically, to sing boldly, maybe, and then to go home where every bit of everything is hitting that fan and putting your life into chaos. And the things you think you know don't really seem to be showing themselves to be true in real life. Again, Brueggemann says, 
for, for the author of this poem, Yahweh is not now as Yahweh was then. Remember this stuff with Moses. Remember when you led them through, when you split the sea with your glorious arm. Where are you? Yahweh of the past is not as Yahweh is in the present. And so the faithful then must pose the great question of theodicy. That means what do we do with the evil in the world? How do we, how do we reconcile what the world has for us and the goodness that we know about God? This is why we sang all those songs about how good God is. Because sometimes, and we're in this room, we go comatose and we say, yeah, God, you're good. And then you go to your car and you remember, oh, something's not adding up here. They're left with these questions and it dominates Israel's complaint. And it's namely this question, where are you? And if I had a nickel for every time I'm gathered with one of us or one of us on, on the periphery, those tangentially uh, aligned people that, that need some sort of spiritual guidance. This seems to be the question of the day. I pray and nothing seems to happen. I believe that God is with me, but I don't feel anything. Where now is Yahweh? Seems to be a pretty relevant question for us. I hope I don't butcher this. I wanted to um, get it out of a, a, a text, and actually, I'm going to do that. This uh, picture that you're looking at, does anybody know who it is? Uh, his name is Ellie Wiesel. Oh, yeah. There you go. Uh, he wrote a book that every college freshman reads. It's called <coughs> Night, uh, and it's his memoir about his time in a concentration camp. And he tells this famous story in that memoir. And I'll just read you this bit here. This is from Hansen's commentary. So it's secondhand. Uh, Elie Wiesel describes the agony of the experience of God's absence. A child hangs from the gallows set up by the SS. Someone is heard to ask, where is God? Where is he? The child struggles between life and death for more than half an hour, and the same person asks again, where is God now? And Wiesel writes, and I heard a voice within me answer him. Where is God? Here he is. He is hanging here on this gallows. There's things in life where we have these huge questions of God that, that are put on display because of the atrocities that we either see or maybe that we're a part of. And I know that when we set the, set the parameters like this, though, it might tend to put some of our problems in a much smaller light compared to the atrocities of the Holocaust. And that's not what I mean to do. But can we, um, can we empathize or uh, sympathize or have any sort of points of contact with this where are you God prayer. More big examples. 
Uh, this is a painting that kind of uh, it, it hones in on uh, the massacre of the infants, which we talked about in Matthew chapter 2. According to the lectionary, that's where most pastors were hanging out today when Herod was wanting to kill all of these babies. And in this particular painting, which is very well known, you can see the emotion on the mom's eyes. A lot of people will like zoom in right here. This is, this is the entire painting is worth itself just, just for this little bit here with the mom holding her kid and maybe even trying to get the kid to be quiet in light of what might happen if anyone were to hear if her hiding spot was to be given up. Christy, is this the one that you were supposed to show to the godly play kids? Different one? I, was, I meant to text you to see which, which one it was, but I think this one speaks to this as well where we have folks, and, and I was struggling to find the point of contact between Isaiah 63 and what Matthew 2 has to do with anything, but we can see how they might go together if we're understanding this lament, this petition, this where are you God sort of theology that's underlying the, the prayers of, of the people. But these are uh, things that seem removed from us. This might seem removed from us as well. This is the most tame picture I, I wanted to show you uh, that, that takes us to the Rwandan genocide in 1994, I believe. Within most of our lifetime, the things that have been perpetrated amongst people and if ever there was something that would make you say, God, where are you? What are you doing? Why aren't you involved? Why aren't you showing up? We oftentimes say, why aren't you stopping this sort of stuff that's taking what we think to be our core theology and calling it into question with, with real life. Our faith and our life is coming into conflict. We might see this more uh, on a, uh, at least a more, close level with regard to, to time with the, the border crisis and the kids in cages. And I don't wanna talk about who's to blame because I don't really care who's to blame because anyone with a beating heart should say, this is not how this should be. And we can talk about uh, the political actions that we might be able to, to do here, but in this sort of thing, I don't think it's a wrong prayer to say, God, where are you? What are you doing? And what are, we do what are we doing? I really struggled as to whether or not to put this next picture in, but I'm going to because we usually don't shy away from talking about things that are uh, current. I don't know if you guys have seen what's been happening in the news over the last couple of weeks, but what you see here is a husband and wife. The wife is one of the worship leaders at a church called Bethel. It's in Redding, California. Uh, they have some very unique theological views, and I forget when this was, but a couple of weeks ago, um, their two-year-old child died. And immediately, mom goes to Instagram and starts uh, asking the global church to pray for resurrection. One day goes by, and two days goes by, and three days, and four days, and five days, and six days go by while this little girl is at the, the coroner's office and they're praying for resurrection. And for many people that are sort of related to this or seeing this, it might beckon the, uh, the response, God, where are you? Why wouldn't you do something here? And there's a lot of things about this that we could unpack. 
I'm not gonna do that tonight. I do, if you need to hear this, I do think that some of, some of this was um, misappropriated. But I completely understand the agony of parents losing their child and not knowing what else to do. And it pains me that a lot of people have either had to swallow ridiculously terrible theology or have left this scenario asking the big questions of, God, why didn't you raise this girl from the dead? These issues, they're not our issues. Probably, I think that's fair to say. Do we know the prayer? God, where are you? And maybe more to the point, what does our circumstance do to our faith when we're in the hospital waiting room, when we're at the graveside service, when we don't have answers to the faith that we thought that we had or the theology that we thought was true and then how life has seemed to call that into question? Do we know how to bring all of this together? Paul Hansen says the true prophet in Isaiah 63, and I would even go beyond that to say, hopefully in the American church, hopefully in communities like this, the true prophet does not seek superficial ways to dispel the darkness of desolation. Perhaps this fits, perhaps this doesn't, but I'll go ahead and say it. I did see, finally, after some of the folks at Bethel decided to move from prayers for resurrection into uh, a time of mourning and a funeral for this girl, one of the most outspoken people in the midst of all of this stuff that was going on made some sort of claim that at the memorial, he not only was moved and grieved and... Um, saddened, but all of this circumstance has led him to a place of thanksgiving. The true prophet does not seek superficial ways to dispel the darkness of desolation. You can't convince me that there's one thing to give thanks for when it comes to a two-year-old girl dying. Maybe I'll be the heretic in the room, but that doesn't seem to square up. And sometimes the hardest theology that we have to do in real life is singing about how good God is and then attempting to reconcile that with the atrocities that we see in the world. And I'll go ahead and spoil the sermon for you. This is the best that I've got. After my years and years and years of study and the best that I've got is I'm sitting across the table from people that are in the pits of grief and agony and despair. The best that I have to offer is to say to them, God weeps when you weep. And God is not orchestrating the death of this young girl. God is grieving the earthly loss of his daughter. I don't know if there's any other way that we can have that conversation, but at least what it does is it allows us to have room for the darkness of desolation, which is not bad. When life goes awry, 
You don't have to slap some fakeness on your face and say, I'm thankful. Because I don't think it's wrong to not be. If we learn anything from these Psalms of Lament, it's that you can shake your fists a bit and ask the big questions about where God is in the midst of suffering and why God is not responding in certain ways, even if sometimes our own understanding of that is misguided. Now, Brueggemann does talk about this as well. He says that there are psalms of orientation, those like core theological psalms that say this is who God is, and then there's moments in your life that disrupt that. Those are the psalms of disorientation where you're shaking your fist and you're saying, God, where are you? And then there's psalms of reorientation where you've cried out to God and God actually has responded and you give thanks for that. But the problem is, once these things go from orientation to disorientation to reorientation, they're going to reset again because life keeps happening. There's always going to be something that disorients you and hopefully moves you to a new understanding of reorientation that gives you a new new, and then you get disorientation, and then you're reoriented, and then there's a new new, and it just keeps going on and on and on. This is the cycle of what happens in our life. This tension of life and faith, it isn't just one thing. It's all the things. And it just keeps going, and it keeps moving. And in the midst of that, I do believe that we can understand the heart of God in the midst of uh, what's happening and how God is with us in all of uh, the atrocities that we might go through. In Isaiah, as in the Psalms, there's a turn to trust in this passage where the author says, in light of all this stuff, the, the hand wringing and the fist shaking, it's happened. But then they go and they say, but now, Lord, you are our father. We're the clay, you're the potter. All of us are the work of your hand. And this is not some resignation to, to allowing God to do whatever he wants to do. No, because of all the stuff that's gone on before. It's not, we're the clay, you can do whatever you want. It's, we will trust you. In the midst of the darkness that we're not dispelling, we know that you've been this in the past and we know that you will be it again, so be it again, but sadly, there is no resolution. At the very end of the psalm uh, in, in Isaiah, it says, after all this, will you hold back, Lord? Will you keep silent and torment us so terribly? This is a long quote, but I think it helps. Hansen says, the doubts and the contradictions, the tensions, the pains that have been expressed in the lament are not thereby resolved. There is no put a bow on it and make it all nice and neat. That's not how it works. We should know that. But they are gifted up in one final impassioned plea to the only one who can help. In the act of lament and supplication, troubles do not vanish, but human vision is lifted above human helplessness to the heavenly parent. And here's the money. In such a situation where no human parent deserving of the name could remain unmoved, is it possible to imagine that the source of love will remain silent? When we have these moments of petition, when we have these moments of fist shaking and hand wringing, when we have these moments, if anyone that we know in this human domain it is worth anything near the name of parent, if they would be moved and they would be moved, then is it possible for us to imagine that the source of love itself will be silent to our pleas? And here's where, here's where we land the plane. 
how are you praying? I think that this is, this is stupid for this room because you've, you've heard me rattle on and on for years now, but are you allowing yourself the space to be ticked? Are you allowing yourself the space to call God to do what God is supposed to be doing? Are you allowing yourself the space to remind God, as it were, of the injustices that are going on in and around our, our residence? Are we allowing ourselves space not to have resolution, but to turn to trust and understanding maybe what that means? Also, we could ask, what are we lamenting? Sometimes it's a good reminder for us to see the images of things that go beyond our lives because oftentimes we're not aware because we live in this vortex where everything is about our family and our work and our relationships. And I would encourage us as followers of Jesus, if our heart is not breaking for these things that seem to be a bit larger than we might be able to fix on our own, that maybe we're, we're missing out on something. Just because we can't necessarily go to the border and open up the, the cages of people and reunite families together, it doesn't mean that we shouldn't care about those situations. Just because we're not on the ground helping to continue to do the work of truth and reconciliation in Rwanda, it doesn't mean that we shouldn't care about that work. Just because we aren't uh, people that are involved in the lives of these folks at Bethel and whatever it is that they're going through, it doesn't mean that we shouldn't care about that and have our hearts break for what's going on in their community, not just the death of this sweet little girl, but also for the theological turmoil that's happening probably in the lives of the community there. What are we lamenting? What are we expecting? Anything? The tendency might be in this room, because we're so uh, academic and philosophical, that we might not be expecting much. I am hopeful that we can call that tendency into question and at least expect God to be who God claims to be in the scriptures. And in all of this, are we trusting that the source of love will not remain silent? Guys, I don't know what this looks like. I don't have a Sweet little conclusion. Here's your three steps. If you got a problem, just do this, that, and the other, and then bada boom, bada bang. Because that hasn't really been how that works in my own life, but I know that sometimes I've ditched all of the other things that we've just talked about. And maybe for the sake of like academic and intellectual honesty, maybe I've stopped thinking that God can do big things, that God is involved and concerned about us, that God can work in our lives in some ways. I will say this, though. While we are waiting for the sky to, to rip open and God to descend, for God to tear the heavens and come down, 
maybe we should get our hands dirty a bit. All throughout the Gospels, Jesus empowers his people to go and do the work. This is why Bethel was doing what Bethel does. Because when Jesus sends his disciples out, he says, go and cast out demons, go and heal the sick, go and raise the dead. And while I would want us to think about what that actually looks like, I would not want us to think too hard about how we are called to invest in the world around us, to fight against the injustices that we see, to be agents of restoration and change. And while our friends' hearts are breaking at what they believe God is not doing, perhaps we can go and be God for them. Perhaps we can do what Jesus is asking us to do, to be his hands and his feet and to be present in their lives in the midst of their tragedies, to give them a tangible image of the kingdom of God. So this is a terrible Christmas message. Many apologies for that. But I do hope that we have opportunities not only to lament well, but also to seek reconciliation and restitution and restoration together as a community.